This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So you may ask, what's that title about? Um, well, when you are asked for a title early, sometimes you don't know what you're going to say. So I figured I could say anything. And what I was thinking about was... Ramoni Cajal and what he would have thought beyond his great gift of seeing things with the Golgi technique that were actually hiding in a forest of complexity. That led him to speculate and make predictions that we're still following in neurobiology today about how things actually connect. If he were alive today, he would be in wonderment, if you like, regarding all of the scales of details that we can now describe with different kinds of microscopies and labels. And he would probably be, as I think this conference is uh, uh, considering, amazed at the gaps. So where are we limited uh, with regard to filling gaps across either the spatial scales, all the way from macromolecules to organs, to the temporal scales. And so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about filling a few gaps all the way out to lifespans, two projects about dendritic spines and about lifelong memories. But I can't do this without giving you a little background on techniques. Uh, at the National Center that uh, Jennifer mentioned, we use really two techniques to do electron microscopy across scales. One is serial section electron tomography, where we take thick sections, map them to get the best X, Y, and Z resolution. We look at systems that can be manipulated. So here a vestibular hair cell as I'm moving around. That's what it's doing. The top is rocking, and it's changing the output. Or we use a method that was pioneered by Winfred Dink uh, called serial block face imaging. You'll see uh, an alternative of this from Held Hess shortly where you can put a microtome inside of a scanning EM and just automatically record image after image after image, kind of like taking a look at a piece at a loaf of bread as you keep slicing it and get a reconstruction with modern methods. If you selectively stain in a cell, as was done by uh, these colleagues, this was a sample we imaged when we first got this going about 10 years ago, that's the endoplasmic reticulum in the mitotic spindle. And if the endoplasmic reticulum is stained, in this case with horseradish peroxidase, you can then pick up, these are mitochondria, those are lysosomes, wait till you see the ER. And this cell's just in the early stages of dividing, okay? So that's all the ER. So how do you find that stuff hiding in plain sight? Okay. So first, uh, unashamed pitch, we pushed this technology quite a bit. While Harold has pushed the technology he's going to tell you about, we've been pushing this to higher and higher resolution and bringing stains in, as you see here, so that we can genetically mark components in the context of this method. We pushed it so that you can look uh, quite easily at uh, structures like the Golgi apparatus, mitochondria, ER. But we've done that through the benefit of a long collaboration with Roger Chen from about the time Roger came to UCSD, uh, even before the fluorescent proteins, uh, but then with families of proteins, coming up with ways of marking genetically for EM, and then ultimately with Alice Ting, uh, Apex, which is a small peroxidase. Now, 
that was preceded by activity trying something called photooxidation using a reactive oxygen generating probe, something as simple as eosin, to generate reactive oxygen and capture diaminobenzidine, which then can be reacted with osmium tetroxide or ruthenium tetroxide to give you electron density in locations. At the scale of molecules, we can see receptors marked quite clearly with this method. So here's an example getting us into spines now. Uh, Eric Bouchong, who's here in the audience, uh, when he was a graduate student in the lab, now he's a senior scientist in the group, tried out using phalloidin, which binds to actin, in this case with fluorescein, but also with eosin. We had it specially conjugated to give us a way of doing actin by EM. At that time, Francis Crick had postulated 1982 that do spines twitch? You can look this up. It's a beautiful little you know, theoretical paper, which was Francis's... Uh, you know, best thing being a theoretician. So these are all dendritic spines marked by actin in a confocal microscope. The cell, this is a Purkinje cell, was also injected uh, just to see it with a red dye. And at that time, our tomography was best done with massive microscopes. Here's a person for size reference. Okay. And we could punch through with these very high energy electrons, 3 million volts, through samples as thick as 10 microns. So kind of a light microscopic sample, but you can see inside. This is from a Fragile X animal model, and you can see how tortured or variable the spines are. That's a hallmark of that disease in animal models or humans. And then if you switch to the eosin phalloidin, do more or less the same thing. That's the light microscopy act, and looks like it's all over. It's not actually. It's concentrated in the spines, and if you punch through it, this is not a tomogram, it's just a projection. The spines are full with this flocculent material that's actin. It's not just filaments. It's like we know in cells now, a gel actually forms dodecahedral plates. Okay. So fast forward to today, we continue to develop these techniques in the math, and Rick Lawrence is a mathematician. Sebastian Fahn, who I believe is here, uh, is a polymer physicist. We developed software and methods and automated these microscopes so that we take as many as 1,000 or 2,000 images of the same object. So by tilting the sample, rotating it, kind of like having 1,000 drones in this room simultaneously taking pictures of you, then you have a super sampling. So this solves to some extent what Daniel said as the Z problem. So what you just saw play was one of these volumes. I'll show you another one. But if you extract the dendritic spine from that volume, that's what it looks like, okay, after you use some fancy tools to follow the actin. Okay, so that's the postsynaptic density. This is a little finger-like process. Probably this guy was trying to extend. But this is just a surfacing of the actin, okay? Here is a more recent one with something called the direct detector, which we invented at the center. So here's the spine, head, neck, the shaft of the dendrite. These are actin polymers. The little balls you see are actin monomers. Here you can even see, if you're close to the front, membrane proteins in the membrane, and then this is extracellular matrix, perhaps the perineuronal net that I'll talk about in a moment which you can see actually connects from the extracellular space through proteins in the membrane on into the cytoskeleton. That's the second part of the talk. If you look at this as a volume now, that's just one 
slide, you can see how rich this is and how we extracted with the right algorithms what you saw on the previous slide. Okay? So this is what we do today at even higher resolution than this to match up to the molecular details that are coming from structural biology. But then to begin with different cadence of experiments to look at what changes during sleep, wakefulness, time scales that we can actually stop action quite easily. So with uh, colleagues uh, in Munich uh, and in uh, Stockholm, we developed methods to extract this kind of information in large scale. Uh, this is just an example of how this is done slice by slice. And you can begin to study these and consistency between spines in different regions or uh, as was published in Science recently by a group collaborating with us, how this changes when you sleep or are awake. Spines shrink by 20% when you sleep. More adventuresomely, we're saying, okay, if we know it's actin or the majority of what's there is actin, what does it look like if you substitute for the uh, center lines that we defined for the actin that you saw in that previous colorful spine spinning, actually actin. And does that tell us anything about the charge and the crowding? So this is taking actin, replacing all the threads. This is actin from the PDB. Why do we do that? Because actin is highly charged, very acidic. And this leads us to predict that the actin creates an ion binding matrix, a gel, and it's actually the sol-gel changes that may be uh, driving a lot of the physiology that's interesting. Okay. So that's a speculation. Moving on back to that extracellular matrix, uh, in a short amount of time, I thought I'd try and squeeze in what I think is one of the most exciting projects, kind of a leave from uh, uh, Roger. Uh, this is what he and I and he was most excited about when he died. Uh, projects now being led by Varda Levram, who's here, uh, having to do with lifelong memories and Martin Hetzer, who's also involved, uh, because these techniques overlap. But Roger's hypothesis is this, and you can look it up. It's in uh, a paper postulating uh, that very long-term memories might be stored in a pattern of holes in the extracellular matrix. The idea being that if the extracellular matrix holds state, and the more dynamic things, like Daniel talked about and you'll hear more about, know about the state of that part of the brain, then those things that turn over will come back or form those parts of cells guided by the extracellular matrix. Kind of like the extracellular matrix is the stone that's chiseled in that gives a durable state for the brain. So that was Roger's idea, that this extracellular matrix would be edited by metalloproteases. Synapses form. Synapses come to a shape by activity or size. Predicted that the synaptic proteins, pre- and postsynaptic, would have short half-lives relative to the extracellular matrix. So how do you test that? How do you play with that? Well, sorry, this is just a little bit more about the perineuronal net, which had been described by Cajal and others. This is what it looks like in light microscopy with wisteria floribunda as a fluorescent stain. And this is some of the molecules that are known to be associated with it. So you can use proteomics and look at that. You can stain it. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. You can stain this the same way that it was just done by light microscopy by doing a peroxidase reaction to mark that material in the extracellular space. You can reconstruct it by the methods that I showed you to see what it looks like. The synapses are in these holes. 
And then the question is, does it stay around? So what Varda did, uh, following a protocol that Martin Hetzer had first done, was create animals that are 100% nitrogen-15. You're otherwise nitrogen-14. So this is kind of the most expensive and heroic pulse-chase experiment. You can see the paradigm here. Uh, what is it, $800 a kilo for the food, something like that? And so these experiments are for the food could be $100,000 for a colony of sufficient size. And then uh, at the right point, after, let's say, a six-month uh, or an 18-month chase with the normal nitrogen, you sacrifice animals from the colony, grind up their brains, do proteomics, and then you're able to ask. Synaptic proteins have short half-lives. Those molecules that I said are part of the extracellular matrix at six months, still 30% of them. At 18 months, they're decreasing, but some of them are quite significantly more persistent than those constituents that everybody's excited about in synaptic plasticity, which do turn over. So this is supportive of Roger's hypothesis. Uh, can we image N15, N14? So then we went after tricks that are done more in geology or uh, in astrophysics, looking at uh, meteorites or whatever. Uh, something that was taught to me by a colleague, Victoria Orphan, at Caltech, working on some samples from the ocean. And this is a machine that uses a cesium beam, knocks out atoms, secondary uh, uh, ions, runs them down something like a mass spec column, and then point by point, you get a collection of masses for uh, as many as seven different uh, uh, atoms. And you can make a map, okay? So one of the things that we tried, uh, Nick's postdoctoral advisor, Jack McMahon, okay, so this goes back away, postulated and then proved that agrin, a molecule that's secreted into the extracellular matrix, guides synapse formation for the neuromuscular synapse. So we said, well, we have intercostal muscles from these mice. What do the end plates look like? Do we see a signal from this method that I just showed you? Yes. Okay. So that would be predicted. Here it shows you can do this. We went from there to ask in these samples from the mice that Varda grew, what about this stuff, this extracellular matrix? Is it old? And here you see, doing the same sort of thing on those samples, okay, that indeed... It is, okay? And this, by the way, is myelin. Myelin turns out, like you saw, maybe if you were paying attention to the bottom, is myelin basic protein, two other myelin proteins are old. So this is telling you, if you look at the brain after the majority of proteins have turned over six months, 18 months later, what piece parts are left behind? And here, this is the stuff that presumably is left behind, turns over very slowly, and these terminals, these boutons come in, plug in, in between. So this is, how would you say, data that is headed in the direction, I think, of strongly supporting Roger's postulate. All of this is unpublished, but I think it's exciting. It's the product of, I think, great thinking by many investigators, great colleagues, great collaborators, generous support, uh, this is the cast of characters, some of whom are here. And I think with that, maybe I meant ended early. I think we can all agree that it is very difficult to understand the brand. 
part of the reason is because the sheer number of uh, neurons we have to study. There's about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, but if you look at the human brain, that's about the same number of neurons. It's also about 100 billion. But what makes it even more difficult is that on average, each neuron is connected with about 10,000 other neurons. Even when you look at a much smaller brain, for example, that of a mouse, there's still about 100 millions of neurons with uh, that forming about 100 billion connections. What makes it difficult to understand is not just the sheer amount of numbers. The thing is that all the mental activities that we really want to be able to understand, for example, perception, attention, or consciousness, is really an emergent property of not just a few neurons, but instead uh, those millions up to billions of neurons that form a neural network or neural circuit by forming connection with each other, which we call synapses. So it's not enough to only and try to understand you know, 100 neurons, even though you can already learn a lot about the universe by looking at 100 stars that are formed at a different stage. So condense all this into a scientific question that we can ask. The first set of questions we want to understand is how a single neuron operates. For example, a single neuron in a cortex may receive 10,000 inputs. We want to know what are those inputs, and we also want to know how this individual neuron integrates all the inputs it receives to generate an output signal. So in another way to ask the question is, what is the input-output relationship for the individual neuron in the brain? After we understand that, we can then look at how multiple neurons, uh, actually you know, tens of thousands of neurons that are working together by forming a circuit, and what are the inputs those uh, circuits receive, and how individual neurons within this circuit um, ex ex um, encode sensory stimuli or exit, uh, execute a neural command, a motor command. So in order to do that, we really need to span a very large uh, scale, both in space and in time, as uh, Mark mentioned previously. So for imaging method, what we would like to have is that we like to have sub-micron spatial resolution, because that is the size of individual synapses. Those are the size of the connections between neurons. But we also want to be able to have millisecond-scale time resolution, because this is how quickly the neural signal is happening in the brain. We want to be able to image all those processes at depths because the you know, brain is a three-dimensional, rather thick structure, which uh, in all the adult brains, uh, they are also scattering. So one of the techniques that has been around for many years, which is very powerful in this aspect, are the so-called two-photon fluorescence microscopy. So the, this, this microscopy relies on the excitation of a fluorescent molecule by, absorpt, by the absorption of two photons at the same time. And then when the molecule comes back to the, to the ground state, it will release its energy in the form of a fluorescent photon. The nice thing about this technique is that the fluorescent signal is only generated at the focus of your excitation laser. So in order to form an image of the brain, what you only need to do is just to scan this focus around inside the brain and connect the fluorescent signal at each position. And then when you plot out this, uh, this two-dimensional raster plot, that basically gives you a micrograph of the fluorescent molecule distribution. As this example shows, you can see that the spatial resolution of this technique is clearly sufficient since you, you are able to see individual dendritic spines in vivo. 
But there's a problem when you try to image uh, the uh, uh, going beyond a two-dimensional image. And this is important because uh, from a single neuron to a neural circuit, this is really a three-dimensional structure. If you only scan in a 2D plan, you will only be able to have a cross-sectional view of, of the sample. So in order to get a volumetric imaging of the neuron, you basically need to scan you basically need to scan this focus uh, in three dimension. So you can see that it takes time. And secondly, sometimes your, your sample may be moving, and then you will have this motion-induced artifact in your image. And finally, if you want to really have high volumetric imaging speed, the traditional approach is basically trying to move this laser focus very rapidly in three dimension. So assume that you can do that, what will, you, what will then happen is that now you will have a huge amount of data because you go from a two-dimensional image now to a three-dimensional image stack. And because of this motion problem that you want to correct, now you need to do three-dimensional motion registration, which is very difficult to do when you are dealing with gigabytes of data. And typically, uh, traditional neurobiology laboratories are not really equipped, either in terms of computational hardware and expertise to really handle this type of big data. And finally, the actual volume rate is still limited by the brightness of the fluorescent molecule. Even if you can move the laser focus very rapidly, the focus is still required to stay at each individual position for long enough time for you to gather enough photon to see the structure. So when we was, was confronted with this problem, we asked ourselves this question, is this traditional approach of scanning this focus in 3D absolutely necessary? And uh, to, before I give you the answer, I want to show you that those are the neurons in the brain, and you can see individual circles. Those are individual, the cell body of individual neurons. And those are the dendritic spines uh, on, 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 in, of a single neuron. So there's lots of things happening. You see flashes of, uh, of fluorescence intensity change, which is basically telling you that these neurons are becoming active. But despite of all those activities, you would probably also notice is that nothing is changing. The, I mean, sorry, the, the, the neurons are not moving around. I mean, lots of things are changing, but, but neurons stay put, maybe because of the actual cellular metrics that are holding them in space. But they are, not, they are so stationary that they, are even constant, they even have constant position on the level of a single synapse. So this means now we actually have a choice, which is specifically true if you have a sparsely labeled sample. You could, you could do this conventional scan, and then for a sparsely labeled sample, you will spend lots of time looking at nothing. Or what you could do is to stretch out your excitation focus so that by scanning this focus once in two dimension, you will have a projected view of the, the same volume. But the advantage here is that the imaging frame rate in this particular case is 30 frames per second now become your volume rate. So here you are looking at a volume uh, of brain inside the awake behaving mouse. And you can see the, the, the neurons uh, um, become brighter and dimmer reflecting the activity of this particular neuron. So this type of focus where we stretch it in the axial direction is called a basal focus or basal beam. And this conventional type of focus where it's very small in the axial direction are called Gaussian beam. 
Now, basil bean is actually not something very exotic. Whenever you go to supermarket and you go to the checkout line, they will have this red light that is reading the barcode. Those red lights are actually basil bean. But so when we use this for two-photon um, fluorescence microscopy, though, we can't just use whatever is inside a, a checkup line uh, of a supermarket. So what we did is that we built a very simple module that is located with, between an um, excitation laser and a two-photon microscope. I'm not going to go through the detail, but we use this uh, um, little equipment called a special line modulator, which allows us to generate a basal beam of different lengths as well as the narrowness. So here are just two examples. On the right-hand side is uh, what the excitation focus actually looks like in the axial direction. I just want to point out that the actual size, you have to stretch this whole thing by five times um, because it's just too long to show it uh, if I show you uh, with uh, its, its real uh, aspect ratio. So you can see that when we use a longer basal beam, in this case about 60 micron in the axial direction, you can see more structures. But one thing I want to point out is that if you compare the image you get with what you have gotten with a conventional approach, you can notice that we maintain the ability to resolve individual synapses. For example, there's about three axonobutons in this Gaussian image, which is clearly detected in the basal images as well. So one big advantage of this approach is that uh, now the imaging becomes insensitive to the axial motion. So what do I mean by that? So here are the image of uh, a stretch of dendrite in a mouse taken with a Gaussian beam as well as a basal beam. So you can see there's quite a bit of motion because this animal is awake and hasn't been fully habituated to head fixation. And we can easily register this image in 2D just to correct the lateral shift. And then now you can see it doesn't, doesn't jitter in the xy direction as much. And if you now plot out the, in, the fluorescence intensity within this small stretch of dendrite, you can see that in the Gaussian data, you see this up and down signal, which actually looks very much like the, the calcium activity that you would expect to see um, when the neuron become active. However, when you look at the basal data, you don't see such up and those, those, uh, those transient-like uh, variations. Now, we could also quantify how much the brain is moving. And when we do that, you actually realize that all those transients we see here are very strongly correlated with the motion of the brain. So then you can say, well, how do you know this is not activity? It could still be some kind of motion-induced activity of the neuron. But we know in this case it cannot be activity because we are not expressing calcium indicator in the brain. This, in this case, it's just a very simple yellow fluorescence protein. So by uh, using a basal beam, now we really don't need to worry about whether the, the, the data you get is contaminated by motion artifact or not. So as I mentioned before, we have synaptic activity, and this really helps us to, to do a, a, sub, a subtype of neurobiological experiment where we ask the question of what are the synaptic input a single neuron receives. So here you are looking at a 3D uh, imaging stack of uh, uh, dendrites of a neuron. You can see there are dendritic spines distributed at a different depth. And the question here we are asking is that what are the orientations and activity each synaptic, each, each dendritic spines, uh, the, of, what are the orientations and activity of the inputs each uh, synaptic spines are receiving? 
Now, if you want to interrogate uh, all the spines within this volume using the conventional approach, the experiment is going to take about 10 hours. But with basal beam, we could probe the orientation selectivity of, the, of, of those synaptic inputs uh, in the same, uh, in a single session, which only will take 20 minutes. So we have about uh, um, uh, 30 times uh, increase of the throughput. And if you analyze this data, you can then gather the tuning property of all the dendritic spines in one run. And in this particular case, we observe some clustering of inputs of similar type. Now, we are not limited to, to this uh, dendritic type of imaging. Any kind of sparsely labeled sample will be, can be studied using this method. So here we are looking at inhibitory neuron population in the mouse brain. And using the conventional approach to probe the first 400 micron of inhibitory neurons, we need to take at least 80 images. But with the Bessel approach, we only need to take four images. And by doing that, in each imaging session, we can get lots of neurons. And by looking at this data, we very easily visualize uh, this trend that the subpopulation of neurons have very highly synchronized activity. So if you are into interneurons, then you will ask the question that there are many subtypes of interneurons. We can label a particular subtype called the VIP neuron. And you can again see that with the Bessel approach, we can get all those VIP neurons in one imaging session. And when we look at their activity, we actually found that those neurons are highly synchronized. And we further discovered that the activity is very much correlated with the diameter of the pupil of the mouse. So now, what, what does that mean? It is known that uh, if your pupils are dilated, that means you are paying attention. So I hope all you guys' pupils are dilated at this moment. Um, but what we basically discovered is that a VIP neuron as a population has extremely synchronized activity reflecting the arousal level. Now, if you are into neuron field, the next cell type you will want to look at are the so-called somatostanding neuron. The reason is because the current model, most dominant model, is that the VIP neuron will inhibit somatostanding neuron. If this model is correct, then what you will expect is the somatostanding neuron's activity to be always anti-correlated with the pupil. But that's not what we see. We do see anti-correlated population, but we also see lots of population that are also correlated. So this means that uh, this, is, this is really a probably too simplistic picture and the somatostanding neuron really has heterogeneous activity that wasn't appreciated before. Now, we actually didn't set out to make this discovery, but because we can image at high throughput, this, this kind of conclusion just naturally fall out of data with a minimum amount of data analysis. One thing I think will make this technique very powerful is that it is very easy to add this capacity to an existing microscope. So my postdoc, Rong Wen, flew down to Max Planck Florida Institute, and it took him only one day to install a basal beam scanning module on a commercial microscope in the David Fitzpatrick lab. And because biology are much harder, they then spent a lot longer trying to get the, the, this high throughput synaptic imaging to work in ferret. So since we published the result, we've been helping multiple labs to implement this method. While we were doing that, we realized there's two limitations of the implementation that we designed originally. Number one is, uh, is the limitation of money, because the specialized modulator is a rather expensive equipment. It's about $25,000. Not every lab can easily come up with the money to, to afford it. Secondly is space. 
especially for labs that are using commercial microscope, oftentimes it's a very compact design. So it's difficult to fit in an SRM-based module into those space, into those space. So an alternative is to use the user, user optics that uh, the checkout line also uses. It's called Exicon to generate a basal beam. It's uh, much cheaper. The whole module now is only about $5,000 and it's very much more uh, compact. But the problem with Exicon-based method is that you cannot really tune how long your, your, your basal beam will be. But my postdoc, Rongwen, figured out that uh, you can simply transmit a, a length inside the module. And by doing that, we can generate a basal beam of different lengths very easily. So again, here, you need to stretch out the focus about 10 times to appreciate the real length. So because this system is so compact, we can now easily implement it on any kind of microscope. One particular uh, microscope that is of interest here is a mesoscope that was designed and built by the group of uh, Carlos Boda at Jinilia Farm. So this microscope has very large field of view. It's about five millimeter, which covers about 50% of, uh, of, of, of half hemisphere of cortex. And I also want to mention that there's this remote focusing unit there, which allows them to very rapidly move the focus in the Z direction. So we can combine the basal module with the mesoscope. This is how what the whole module looks like relative to the microscope. And now we can probe a very large volume of neurons at very high resolution. For example, here we'll keep zooming in into this very large field of view, and you can still see we maintain the resolution to, um, to see dendritic spines. And just a few nice movies. Um, by uh, combining this with functional imaging, now we can do actual large volumetric functional imaging at high speed. So this is a 300 Gaussian image frame of a single neuron labeled in the mouse cortex. And we can just translate uh, the basal beam six times. We can cover the same volume. And in this case, we can now monitor their activity while maintaining the ability to see individual synapses. And remember, at the beginning of my talk, I mentioned the goal of being able to study the input-output relationship of a single neuron. Now we really have the technique to do that in a wake-behaving animal. The very last, last example I want to show is when we look at not just single neurons, but also uh, cell bodies in a circuit. So here we are looking at an extra large volume. It's, those are the inhibitory neurons from the first 650 micron. Um, uh, stick in the mouse brain. And we can image this whole volume, 1.3 millimeter by 3 millimeter by 600 micron volume of uh, inhibitory neuron activity at one hertz. And we're still doing data analysis, but just, you know, subset of data give us about 1,700 neuron of the, uh, of the activity information. So I just want to quickly summarize. This work was made by the postdoc Rongwen with help from many biologists um, and collaborators both inside and outside Jinilia. Thank you very much. So my lab is interested in the development of new high-speed volumetric imaging techniques with the goal of understanding how neural circuits um, give rise to behavior. And you have heard already a number of fascinating talks today, today and also the motivations for why we need these tools. For us, I just want to briefly summarize also why from a biological point of view uh, we are developing these techniques. And this is basically comes down to what has been already mentioned previously, which um, is related to the de incredible density of the interconnectedness of the neurons in the brain. So if we 
think about the human brain that has about 80 billion neurons and we take out two enough neurons randomly, they are only connected over two or three synapses. And uh, so this alone shows us that in many cases, information may be not represented by the individual elements of the systems, but rather by, by states of the, of the network. And therefore, we intrinsically need to move forward and record uh, from many neurons at the same time. So these are some of the questions that we are interested in approaching by developing these technologies in the lab. And you have heard also about um, parallel efforts that are going on uh, on the level of connectomics uh, that are related to understanding the wiring diagram or, or the connectivity. But um, I think Connectum will not be answering us uh, um, these questions. Uh, it may be so the connectome may be putting us a constraint on how we could approach this question, but it will be not sufficient to answer them. And the best example comes from C. elegans that we also heard about. The C. elegans had only 300 neurons. The connectome is mapped out already for over 30 years. Nevertheless, we still cannot predict the behavior of C. elegans. So that is really the motivation for us, why we want to move forward and develop, uh, move towards functional maps of neural circuits uh, and in particular, what is here necessary is we need to have tools that allow us to do two things. On one hand, we want to be able to do stimulation of defined spatial temporal patterns of activity on a genetically identical um, set of neurons and combine that with a parallel and unbiased recording from an entire population while we are doing that. And you can also think about if you had these tools, how we would be going conceptually about approaching some of these questions. And what we would like to do is we would like to use methods from uh, machine learning, graph theory, and information theory to approach them. So in this example, you can imagine that the first set of tools could allow us to position ourselves in each of these individual states of this abstract space that are, is the state space. And then by having the ability to observe how these points evolve to other points, we could build over time transition probability maps that could inform us um, about the pro probability of the transition, transitions and use them to, in to inform uh, models that could be generative of the dynamics of the brain. And ultimately, what we are interested in is to work towards the discovery of the underlying algorithms. Uh, so about um, seven, eight years ago, when we started with this um, project, we first uh, focused on the third, first topic and developed basically based on optogenetics uh, methods that allow us to sculpt the distribution of light and um, thereby stimulate individual neurons at high speed and resolution. And uh, moreover, the last uh, few years, we have focused on the second topic, which is the parallel on unbiased recording. And here we have developed a portfolio of different techniques that are addressing this question from the level of small organisms on the, on the C. elegans, and more recently in the more scattering brain of um, uh, rodents, and um, we are moving also to, towards the primate imaging. So, and today I would like to basically to give you a vignette of uh, some of the techniques that we have developed, mainly around the idea of light sculpting that has found application both in the smaller semi-transparent uh, C. elegans, but as I will show you also um, could be a useful uh, technique for uh, imaging the rodent brain. So I would like to introduce the basic idea of light sculpting. And those of you who are familiar with optics and uh, microscopy techniques uh, quickly realize that in any kind of microscope, basically, the two parameters that are describing the confinement of the light in our sample are given by, the, uh, by two things. One is the spot size of a beam that we choose to 
um, illuminate the sample with. And the other one is the depth of field or the axial confinement. And you have heard this in also in many talks. And with the problems that we are facing in, in, in some sense is the fact that these two parameters that are fundamentally defining the properties of light in the, in the sample are both given by the wavelength of light, lambda, and the numerical aperture of the optics, which is basically the ratio between the, the diameter of the lens and the focal length. So as, as such, the two are inherently coupled. And so whenever we choose our um, spot size to be a certain size, we inevitably end up with a certain axial confinement or, uh, or depth of field. And what we are basically asking is how can we go beyond that and come up with a technique that can allow us to create more arbitrary distributions of light within the sample. Now, as you have heard, the lambda is the, basically the wavelength of light. So if we set also our wavelength fix, then there is no way around this uh, coupling. So we will end up inevitably for every given spot size with a given depth of field. However, if we go to a different situation, you have heard also about two-photon microscopy. And in two-photon microscopy, this is typically based on the use of uh, femtosecond pulses of light. And um, due to the so-called un uh, uncertainty relationship, uh, which says that if you choose the time very short, you end up with um, an uncertainty in energy, which translates in an uncertainty into colors, means that if we use femtosecond pulses, we are no longer dealing with a set sing single wavelength, but with a spectrum. And so you can see at least that by e exploiting that spectrum effectively, this constraint that I was mentioning before could be relaxed. And so one way how this can be done has been uh, shown to be um, through the technique of so-called temporal focusing that I would like to introduce to you uh, briefly. So the basic idea is we use these femtosecond uh, pulses of light. We send them to a dispersive element, for instance, a grating. And what the grating does is it sends the different spectral component within the pulse along different spatial directions. So as the pulse is propagating away from the grating, the peak intensity drops off as a function of propagation, and this leads basically to a dilution of the photons in space, so a pulse like that is not very effective in exciting the molecules. So we reduce the two-photon excitation probability as a function of propagation. Now we reverse the process by using a telescope that is consisting of a lens and our microscope objective. And what that telescope does is it forms an image here on this, in the sample uh, of our originally short pulse on the grating. So what that means is that there will be only one plane in the axial location where all these spectral components will be again co-localized both in time and space, leading to this high uh, energetic pulse that is very effective in exciting the molecules. But outside of that region, we are basically dealing with a dispersed pulse and such pulses are not very effective in exciting the molecules. So what we can achieve in this way, we can achieve the localization of excitation in the axial direction by manipulating the uh, spectral properties of the pulse uh, and thereby basically decouple it from the lateral confinement and have the, reserve the lateral confinement to basically choose the spot size that we are interested in in the sample by basically illuminating the pulse on the grating with a different size. Just to draw the comparison to the standard two-photon microscope that you are more familiar with, in the standard two-photon microscope, both the localization laterally and axially are, are, um, are generated by the focusing in space. And in the temporal focusing, the axial localization is generated by manipulating the spectral properties of the pulse, and laterally we can focus in space. 
So going to the problem of large-scale volumetric imaging, we thought instead of now exciting each of the neurons at, 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 at once and scanning it, we could use that to create a sheet of light, similar to Philips light sheet microscopy. In this case, we can create a sheet that is spanning over about 75 microns, but still be actually confined to about two microns. So the main difference here is that it's a two-photon excitation, and it doesn't require the geometry that you saw before, where you have the two objectives uh, being orthogonal to each other. So the idea was exciting a, a, a field of view of that size, and then scanning that sheet actually quickly to capture the volume. And we wanted to use GCAMP again as our um, calcium indicator. And the reason why we chose that size was that we were interested in looking at the um, brain of C. elegans that is roughly uh, would fit in that, in that volume. So now if you want to do two-photon excitation of a sheet of that size, this doesn't work with the conventional laser sources that people have been using for two-photon scanning microscopy. You need significantly higher pulse energies. And for that, we use a so-called regenerative amplifier that is shown here. Basically, it is seeded by a conventional two-photon laser. And it, what it does, it creates significantly higher pulse energies, but at the lower repetition rates. And uh, so the pulses are now sent to the grating. And here you have the temporally focused, uh, focusing setup that I was describing. And the fluorescence is now excited here and then collected, separated by a dichroic, and sent to a detector that we have designed based on a so-called image intensifier and a, and a camera. So overall, you can see that we can create now a, a sheet that is about 75 microns and being actually confined to two. And what this allows us basically is to go at very high speeds, uh, about 200 frames per second, or video rate uh, volumetric imaging. So as I said earlier, we wanted to apply that to the, to the brain of C. elegans. And the neurons we wanted to record from here are located in so-called head ganglion that are shown here. And this was done in a collaboration with my former colleague, Manuel Zimmer, who is at, at IMP. So when we first expressed GCAMP into all of these head uh, ganglion neurons, we saw that due to the uh, uh, incredible density of the uh, neurons and of the small size, uh, we couldn't distinguish them individually. Uh, so we came up with the idea of using a nuclear localized version of GCAMP. Basically, it has a nuclear localization sequence that drove the expression of GCAMP into the nuclei. And then we could nicely see that the neurons were localized uh, in all dimensions. So we could apply our uh, wide field imaging technique. And what I'm showing you here is now a, a three-dimensional maximal intensity projection of about 120 neurons of the worm and during spontaneous activity. So you see significant spontaneous activity. Certain neurons are correlated. Others are anti-correlated to each other. And this is all recorded at about um, uh, five volumes per second. Uh, our method can go um, about four or five times faster, but, but uh, neurons in C. elegans have intrinsically low-responding or slow-responding uh, time scales, so we chose to uh, image them at the lower frame rates. Now, if you have such a high-dimensional um, system and you want to make sense out of it, so one, one simple way of asking what are these neurons telling us and what are they doing is to do dimensionality reduction. And one simple way of doing it to, is to uh, do principal component analysis, which is like asking what are the most components in this system that it can rise to the variance that we are observing here. So when we do PC, uh, P, uh, PCA, uh, we observe that the 
about 70% of the variance of this data was explainable by the first three principal components that are now shown here. And here you see the color is now encoding for the time. Now again, uh, the great advantage of C elegance comes from the fact that we have the connectome, so we can map these principal components back to the known connectome. And what we found was that the first principal components was basically an antagonism between different interneurons and head motor neurons. Uh, the second principal component was a class of head motor neurons, and the third principal component uh, was antagonism between, dif between different head motor neurons. And we could now uh, display these principal components in the phase space, and what we observed was an interesting behavior which showed um, sort of a trajectory that was reproducible and also was characterized by regions that resembled attractors, which you can see now in this movie much better as the states of the brain are evolving, you see that the brain seemed to be spending time in one of these attractors. And then it's switching back and going to another attractor, coming back again, and going on and on and so on. So this was an interesting observation. And now we have uh, increasing evidence, uh, mainly from the lab of Manuel, who has been looking also in these animals during free behavior. And what we know is these, these attractors correspond now to unique motor programs, such as forward crawling, backward crawling, left and right movement, and so on. So it seems that during spontaneous activity, the brain is randomly switching between these possible motor programs. And in the presence of the stimulus, this landscape could be tilted such that the probability of one of them being assumed over the other could be modulated. So we are following up on this uh, biologically and uh, interested in now developing techniques that allow us to observe this behavior during freely free uh, navigation as the animal is uh, making left-right type of decisions and see what, do we, what kind of um, things can we observe here. So while working on this, we have been also trying to push these methods further. And I would like to give you uh, uh, an overview of another technique, and this is related to how can we extend these techniques into the mouse brain and look at the larger scale in scattering tissue. So since you are, many of you are familiar with um, conventional two-photon scanning microscopy, I just want to briefly take a moment and outline the limitations, the fundamental limitations of two-photon microscopy. Let's assume that we, would have, we were interested in recording from a volume that is about 500 micron cube. And this would be about the size of our diffraction-limited spot. And we want to record from this volume at about 5 hertz. Now, if we do the simple math, this, these are 500 million voxels, and recording them at 5 hertz requires a 2.5 uh, gigahertz acquisition rate. And therefore, if you want to at least excite each pixel with one pulse, we would need to have a laser that runs at that repetition rate. So lasers are conventionally not available at this rate, but even if they would be, we are facing another problem that is that at each individual voxel, we will be spending only 0.4 nanoseconds, which is about an order of magnitude shorter than the fluorescence lifetime. It means we will not be able to collect any fluorescence out of these um, voxels. So one conceptual solution that we need to we could imply, employ here is to minimize the spatial resolution or the sampling rate um, to, the, to the limit of the structure of interest. So if we are interested, for instance, in recording from individual cell bodies or from individual neurons, this resolution in some way may be too good, and we are paying the price for that uh, by having a reduced uh, volumetric acquisition rate. So the question becomes, in some way, how can we relax the spatial resolution in a meaningful, meaningful manner? 
So um, cortical neurons are on the order of about 10 to 15 microns. And this is the size of the point spit function. And in some ways, people are mainly using that, at least for these kinds of imaging, because they are mainly interested in the axial sectioning capability. So we could, in principle, relax the spatial resolution laterally by, for instance, on the filling the microscope objective. But if we do that, then we will send, end up with a beam that is going actually about 70 microns, uh, for the reasons I mentioned before. So what we really want is to be able to, have, to sculpt an isotropically, um, isotropically uh, sculpted point spit function laterally and axially. And, so, and thereby, we would also need to be able to decouple, again, the lateral from the axial confinement. And this is, again, where light sculpting comes in. So the idea here is now, instead of sculpting our point spit function to be a large sheet, as I was showing you before, in this case, we, would, we, we sculpt it to be a, an isotropically shaped 5 micron sphere, which shown here. And then we can scan this by various methods. Uh, this is in conventional way, laterally and actually to um, cover the volume. So going back to the example that I, I showed you, so the 1 million pixels are now translating uh, at, uh, acquired at 5 hertz to about 5 megahertz uh, uh, acquisition rate, and which is uh, more realistically possible with, uh, with laser technology. And also we get a much higher uh, pixel dwell time at each of them, so we can collect significantly more fluorescence. So nevertheless, if you look at the, at the size of this point spit function, it's still 130 times larger than the conventional diffraction limited point spit function. So um, lasers that were developed for that um, excitation wouldn't work here because they lack, again, the sufficient uh, laser pulse energies. So we built a laser in our own lab uh, that was running at about 4.1 megahertz and delivered 0.5 microjoule pulses that are enough to excite these sized point spit functions, and this was integrated into a scanned version of the temporal focusing setup, which is consisting basically of mirrors and uh, that are then uh, scanning the beam that is illuminating the grating, and the grating together with the uh, um, lens and the objective is performing the temporal focusing, and we are scanning it up and down with an objective, uh, piezo. So we collect now into fluorescence instead of on camera from each of these point spit function on a PMT. And the acquisition is also synchronized with the excitation. So we are running in the, in the domain that we have in one pulse per pixel only. So this is just an uh, impression of the home-built laser and its integration to the uh, scan temporal focusing microscope. Next, we were interested in recording the activity from a, a in vivo in the mouse brain. So we used mice in, uh, where we expressed a GCAMP in the motocortical areas and in the PPC while they were awake and were running. So with this, we can now go deep and look at the layer 2, 3 neurons and record from them, as you can see here, at about 200 microns depth uh, from, from about 110 neurons or so. We can go also deeper to layer 5 neurons at about 470 microns, record from a similar number of neurons, and what is, what is important here now to realize is we are now looking at a field of view that is about 500 by 500 and can capture that at 160 hertz. So this is way too fast for a single plane uh, given the slow response time of calcium. So what we could do is to use the time instead and look at two planes, for instance, at the same time, which is now shown here, one at 150, the other one at 350 microns recorded simultaneously. Or going back to the example that I was outlining, we can now go here and record from a volume 
that is now about 500 micron cubed, encompassing about 4,000 neurons and record all of that at about 3 hertz volumetric rate. So here you start also to see the this layered structure of the cortex, the layer 2, 3 neurons and the layer 4 neurons uh, that uh, try to, uh, that seem to coming out here. And one of the things that we are now um, collaborating with, with other labs, um, is trying to understand basically how the cortex performs computation. So we know that computation arises from uh, complicated interactions between different layers of the uh, cortical neurons, but how that is exactly done is, is not uh, very clear. So just to show you what we can also observe if we do some simple data analysis, this is basically looking at the top 0.1% cross-correlations within a given time window. What we observe are also interesting functional connectivities or, or networks that are forming transiently then also then changing over time. Uh, here the strength of these lines are indicating the degree of the correlation. So one could look at these things in principle and ask how do they change under different behavioral states um, in, 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 on the diseased states um, and so on. So just want to briefly summarize. So you, we saw that this idea of light sculpting is possible by decoupling the lateral from the axial parameters of the beam. And this allows us in, in the wide field configuration uh, is useful for recording at high speed in semi-transparent organisms like C. elegans. And in combination with, with scanning, it can be a method that allows us to record uh, on the single cell resolution from a large um, uh, number of neurons in the scattering brain. Finally, I just want to thank the people in the lab who have been uh, involved in doing the work and our collaborators as well as our funding sources. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.